0: This is The Urban Political.
1: The podcast on urban theory, research and activism. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast with Hilary Angelo and Isabel Angolovsky. And um, me, Mays Jafari, the host of this uh, episode. In our episode today about uh, green cities and contemporary climate planning, practices and politics, Uh, We're discussing the uh, greening cities and contemporary climate policies, their limitations, consequences, particularly in post-industrial regions and cities in transformation. And later, we will be discussing the intersections of race, gender, ethnicity um, and socially greening and the climate policies. Finally, we will talk about the impact of COVID-19 on people's use of nature, as well as government's approaches of uh, green infrastructure. Um, green infrastructure. So we will start with uh, a short introduction about uh, yourselves, Hilary and uh, Isabel. So please briefly introduce
0: yourself. Uh, sure, thanks, Maïs, I can start. Uh, My name is Hilary Angelo, and I'm an assistant professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Um, I study, among other things, urban greening, urban sustainability planning, uh, and contemporary climate policy. But as a sociologist, I do do so from a kind of social scientific and social theoretical perspective. So a lot of my work is focused on um, the ideas about nature that drive our interventions in cities. And uh, before I became an academic, I used to work for the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation, where a lot of my interests in these questions came from.
2: Thank you, Maïs, for uh, for hosting us. Um, so I have a background in urban studies and planning. I, uh, I'm originally from France, but got my PhD um, at MIT, then came back to Europe uh, around 10 years ago in 2011. And now I'm a NICREA research uh, professor at one of the public universities in Barcelona, which is the Autonomous University of Barcelona. And I'm also the director of the Barcelona Lab for Urban Environmental Justice and Sustainability, which is a um, research, engaged research uh, lab that starts from the premise of doing uh, critical sustainability studies, starting with a strong social inequality lens and with a lot of um, interest from our um, community of researchers in in critical public health, um, geography, sociology, social movements, and mobilization for for just green cities, and then also a study of all of the policies and practices that can lead us to uh, more justice as cities engage in this uh, greening route, let's say.
1: So for the audience, I'll introduce myself. I am Ms. Jaffery, and uh, I work at the TU Dortmund University as a research scientist, uh, where I finished my PhD from. And uh, yeah, I, I research public spaces and the perception of public spaces in different contexts. Um, and I'm happy to have you uh, here in our uh, episode today. So first, congratulations, Hilary, in your wonderful new book about about how green became good. Um, And in your book, you examine and will document urban greening in the region in Germany across three moments uh, in its contemporary history, from industrialization in the late 19th century to post-war democratic ideals in the 1960s and uh, to industrial decline and economic and urban renewal in the early 90s. Uh, You also argue that turning uh, of neglected formal industrial sites into urban greening projects is not just a physical transformation, but rather a social development in which social practices are driven by uh, social imaginaries. So that brings me to to a fundamental question in our episode for you both, uh, Hilary and Isabel. So why nature is good and uh, what the value it adds socially and environmentally? Uh, so why green is important to people and uh, what do you think uh, the
0: value associated with it? Um, yeah, I'll go first. Thanks for mentioning the book, Yes. Yeah, so my this book just came out. It's called How Green Became Good. The questions that were motivating it are very similar to the ones that you just raised. And um, the goal of the book was to try to provide a sort of historical and critical perspective on the contemporary green city or contemporary greening. And I think, um, you know, we tend to assume today or many sort of practitioners go about their greening projects today, assuming, assuming that green is good. And as a, as a sociologist and as a sort of historical sociologist, the question that I was interested in is where do these ideas come from? um, And, you know, can we trace their history and can we then from that better understand the kinds of assumptions that people are operating with when they use them to transform the built environment? So you asked, um, I guess, you know, what values does nature add or why is green good? And so I think the kind of one of the questions that I try to ask is, how does green become good? Where do we learn to think about it in these ways and what does it then enable us to do? And one of the um, historical transformations I, I look at in the book or that I make an argument about is a kind of moment um, in the 19th century, though, though this, this sort of arrival of this moment varied in places different places and times, but a sort of transition from seeing nature as a a good that was useful for like subsistence purposes or other kind of material benefits, right? The nature as a food source to the way we tend to think about um, nature today in these greening projects where nature becomes more, a much more kind of moral or affective good. So something that's understood to be, you know, socially beneficial or improve quality of life in cities,
1: Oh, thank you. So what do you think, Isabel? So what's the value uh,
2: nature uh, brings to to people? So I really like Hillary's um, historic perspective because it seems that, you know, now you have all of these cities that are competing to be the greenest, uh, the most livable cities uh, around the world. But then we cannot forget that the whole greening movement, the whole hygienization movement of cities, you know, started in the 19th uh, century with the acute industrialization of our urban areas. So I really like that perspective. What what we are really also seeing now is kind of a revival of the idea that that green is beneficial. And I think it kind of comes from maybe two, three different contexts. One, which is the public health, uh, the, the environmental epidemiology research, and then applied, let's say, policy where, uh, greening decreases your um, your mortality risk. For example, greening is known to decrease all risks of mortality by by eight percent. You also know that uh, greening helps to address uh, air pollution, uh, filtrates uh, particle uh, particulate matter. Uh, although sometimes it also can create new allergies. So anyway, there are some always some trade offs about how to green cities in ways that can. Um, Improve health without creating other um, health impacts, but anyway, so there was there's a whole movement um, to address air pollution for um, for health reasons uh, and for the relationship between pollution and uh, respiratory diseases, cancers, um, and 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 others, and then that's all linked to um, to Improved mobility, so more sustainable mobility, more active mobility uh, in cities, and again, kind of a um, um, kind of a wholesome vision for um, a healthy city for for everyone. Then you also have the whole climate, uh, biodiversity, ecology community, which really sees greening as a way to both um, address mitigation needs. So, for example, uh, the need to uh, to reforest. Um, Eroded areas uh, or areas that could be more um, exposed to wildfires, for example, and then you also have greening in the um, in the perspective of climate adaptation and so adapting to um, to sea level rise, to um, to increase risk of flooding, and so the whole green resilient infrastructure uh, movement that we see, and then finally, there is also the whole economic argument now that cities have really jumped on because green sells. Green sells uh, for new real estate projects. It sells a new image of the city. It's a form of branding to track the creative class like Austin did very well. Uh, Austin in Texas did very well for this. Um, Nantes in France did also very well when it closed its uh, shipyard industry in the um, 1990s at the very beginning of the 1990s. It really engaged in a huge green and blue wave of Uh, just creating green everywhere. And so now it's known as the city of 100 gardens. And it's also known as this new metropolis in France. And it was a city that originally only had like 200,000 residents, but now it has positioned itself nationally as as the place to go if you don't want to live in Paris. And so I think that economic argument is very powerful because it also justifies all of the more costly arguments that, uh, sorry, all the more costly costly investment that um, climate adaptation for example uh, requires. so there is a benefit for it. Um,
1: thank you Isabel. So you just mentioned a wide range of benefits uh, from interaction from interacting with nature. So uh, do you think that all people benefit equally from urban green spaces and um, all people have equal access to urbanized nature um, with all of these benefits you just mentioned?
2: No. Uh, And if I think if that's a follow up uh, question to what you're asking uh, before, I can, I'm happy to answer first, but absolutely not at all. And I think there are really two moments there, which is that there is a historic legacy of unequal access to uh, nature by race, ethnicity, and class. You see it in the U.S., you see it in Canada, or in Europe, um, in Germany, for example, the areas uh, in Berlin that have the least uh, amount of green space are areas where um, a higher percentage of working-class residents and um, racialized immigrant communities are living. Um, and that's, that's a repetition that you see in every other um, city. And so that's from a deep legacy, for example, in the U.S., Uh, coming from uh, racial segregation, white flight to the suburbs, uh, disinvestment uh, uh, from urban cores, that all happened uh, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and that kind of brought uh, urban centers to a point where um, more working class and racialized communities were living in areas that were not green, that didn't have access to nature, um, and that, you know, contrasted with other areas of the cities that were more peripheral, that tended to have greater access to trees, parks, etc. And then now you have kind of a second way, which is, OK, so first of all, cities are trying, at least those that claim to uh, start from an equity lens or put equity at the center, try to address that legacy of lack of access to uh, to green space and places like Philadelphia uh, Baltimore put a lot of emphasis on, this, Boston. But then you now have also a process that uh, Hillary and I study, which is, and others, <laughs> that's called uh, green gentrification, where you see that areas that have been greened over the last um, 10, 15 years or so. So it's kind of a new wave, if you will, of, of uh, city revitalization via greening are now seeing uh, greater investment in uh, real estate properties that are luxury luxury real estate, land speculation, um, moving of, of residents from higher classes, from higher income, and, and wider backgrounds. And this process, I'm simplifying, then creating um, higher cost of living and then displacement of marginalized groups. And so there is no access that's equal to nature because those groups that actually were living or uh, originally let's say, you know, 30 years ago in neighborhoods that were industrial and um, deprived, then be started to benefit from greening. And then now they have to be displaced. So it's kind of this double, um, in a way, double injustice.
1: Um, OK, so thank you for your answer. So you uh, you mean in the contemporary climate planning and the policies, uh, these issues um, are, are not considered in the planning. So gentrification, higher cost of living, displacement, uh, social equity. So, um, do, do you st- still think that people don't have equal access to this? Uh, yeah, to, the, to 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 nature. Although it's it's just nature. It's it's like uh, it's not built environment. Um, so, what do you think about that? And maybe uh, Hillary, you will tell us ab- about your opinion on that and uh, so who's uh, included in, in the uh, policies of uh, contemporary climate planning and who's left out and what the consequences of, uh, of these policies. Okay. So, if you have uh, to comment about that uh, first, uh, Isabel, and if you have no comments, maybe uh, Hillary can start with her answer.
2: Yeah, I'm happy to uh, hear Hillary's thoughts too. I've to, extended myself okay. way too much. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, thank you. And actually, yeah, so I'm happy to respond to that. And maybe before we get into contemporary climate planning, I'd just like to add a few things to Isabel's response to your previous question about whether everyone benefits equally. Um, so I completely agree with everything that Isabel said, and I just I just add a couple of things to it. So one. So I mentioned before that in the book, one of the things I'm interested in historically is a kind of shift in the way we think about nature from a sort of subsistence or material good to something that is seen to have kind of moral and effective benefits. One of the things that I think comes along with that idea, and this is like, there are aspects of the ways we think about nature that have a really long history. So one of the things that I think is um, is there's a kind of romantic idea of nature that grows out of the Enlightenment, a kind of European and American tradition, um, an idea of an external nature as being outside of society. And one of the things that I argue comes along with that is an idea of nature as sort of or green space as benef- benefiting everyone equally. Right, The idea being that if it kind of stands outside of human divisions, that um, we can all uh, yeah, benefit from its access, uh, from access to it in more or less the same way. So kind of translated into contemporary planning and policy, you end up with a discourse sort of like the following. Well, if we put in a park, you know, all that, all that really needs to be done is to provide sort of physical access to it. So if everyone can get to a green space, then that kind of meets the democratic mandate and allows nature to do all these wonderful things that it does improve public health and um, And improve economic outcomes and all the things that that Isabel was mentioning. So I think um, one of the challenges of that is that when we think about sort of the politics of urban nature and urban greening, too often the conversation even just stops at the level of access, right? So we think a lot about kind of democratizing um, green cities in terms of physical access. But one of the things that I think the kind of legacy of... Um, these sorts of racial and ethnic geographies that Isabel was mentioning is that there's also a whole layer of kind of sort of cultural access, I guess you could say, that has to do with the way these spaces are designed, what kinds of um, activities and behaviors are seen to be, um, you know, uh, expected or available to people in them. So I think that's just just one other way that people don't benefit equally from greening projects. So the sort of layer of uh, physical access, but also kind of cultural or social access. Um, and uh, the other thing I was going to say is just that this this idea, I think, allows us to kind of carry out greening as a public good. So too often, um, again, we sort of think that these projects can can be a kind of cure-all for all kinds of social problems. And don't always um, think about some of these differences.
1: I, I have a question uh, to what you said about the access, mm-hmm. whether it's social access or physical access. So do you think the design of, of a park, of a public space uh, uh, infl- like is the determining factor of the access or the uh, gender access, for example, or the uh, c- cultural dynamics
0: and the culture of a society? Yeah, I think it's a, so I'm not a designer, of course, but I think, you know, so one, so one in terms of the design questions that I would ask of designers, right? So there's a sort of level that's about location. There's a level about the sort of physical design of a park I mentioned, um, or a green space. I used to work for the parks department. So, you know, thinking about sort of multi-use spaces and so on, I think is important. Um, When I was working at parks, There was at the time, um, this is in New York City, the Department of Parks and Recreation, what was called a language access initiative um, that was coming down from the mayor's office and basically the city was being asked to better serve new immigrants in all of its city agencies and so in the parks department um again this raised all these questions about like what did access to nature actually mean was it about physical access um language access usually relates to like translating signage or translating rules into other languages and so um the the sort of parks department the city agency sort of initially thought that well all we need to do is you know translate this sign that says please put your litter in the trash can um into into more languages but I think part of the work that I did there was to with my coworkers at the time was to try to like help expand the conversation beyond these um these questions of uh, signage and kind of physical access to, to some of these more yeah yeah ideas about use and users
1: mm-hmm. thank mm-hmm. you Um, I ask this because um, in my my research or traveling, observing public spaces in Jordan, in the U.S., in Germany, and in Iran uh, recently, um, like design can play a minor role in determining the access. Sometimes the culture, the dynamics, uh, uh, the cultural codes, uh, they're more uh, determining the uh, Who's accessing the, the space? So I I was interested uh, to know what you think about it, at least in
0: the uh, in the US context. Um, yeah, I think. Okay, oh, sorry. Let me just say one more thing. Yeah, I think that's exactly yeah. right. And you know, one thing that I guess I would also add, like some something that I try to do in my work, again as a sort of historical sociologist and not a planner or a designer or even a very. Um, you know, policy-oriented scholar in a direct sense, is to try to disentangle some of these dynamics that seem to me to be really bound up in the current political economy, right? So these like dynamics of, of green gentrification that Isabel was mentioning before, with some trends and patterns and questions that we might ask in greening projects that actually have a much longer history and that you can see playing out in really different places in really different ways, including at really different time periods. So, um, you know, nature's ideas, public health benefits has a long history, um, certainly going back to the 19th century in the U.S. and Europe, uh, which are the contexts I know best. Um, and the, some of these questions about, you know, what makes these ac- spaces accessible and what can people be doing in them? Right In New York City's Central Park in the 19th century, um, it was supposed to be for sort of, you know, Promenading and uh, riding around in your carriage for wealthy New Yorkers and learning how to become a cultured and wealthy New Yorker if you weren't one of those people who had a carriage yourself. But there were all kinds of, you know, lots of things that you weren't supposed to be doing in that park. So all that's true today and elsewhere. Yeah.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, so back to the point you mentioned, um, Isabel, about the benefits for climate and um, climate related uh, planning. So what does this all mean in the context uh, in the context of contemporary climate policy what we just mentioned uh, all the aspects and uh what do you think what changes uh is the climate crisis uh, prompting
2: Yeah, know i think it's interesting because Nowadays, like in the in the European Union where where I live, there's this new whole new vocabulary of nature based solutions, NBS, that uh, the european commission has has promoted for for cities to um, to engage. With and then researchers as well. So you know, we are here doing research with cities about how to reintegrate nature in the city. And but the way that the EU is thinking about it is okay, bring nature back in and it will solve every single problem. And one of them is actually it will also create jobs and create economic growth. And so there, there is a complete disconnect. There is a complete dissonance between what um, what cities, what um, entities, what political institutions like the EU are aiming to achieve, which is both climate adaptation and climate mitigation, and then the type of uh, rhetoric that still promotes. Um, Massive use of uh, resources and a very predatory type of economy, like basically economic growth, which has been proven to be one of the main causes of, um, of carbon emissions and then of waste creation and of the climate crisis. And so, and the nature is supposed to solve all of this. And so there is really a huge uh, disconnect, a huge dissonance there between the goals the vision that is being stored and in the end, the capacity of those nature-based solutions to address the deep um, climate emergency that we are faced with. So that's one thing. Um, on the other hand, you can see that some cities are really being bold with approaches that actually are also aiming to, um, to address climate needs. So for example, um, sea level rise, um, extreme flooding, um, droughts, heat island effects, and they are using greening in ways that can be also empowering both for um, urban residents, for uh, civic organizations that work around greening, and then at the same time that have other goals that are, for example, caring cities or the city of care or cities that are built around also the solidarity and the social economy. And so, Barcelona, for example, is one of those cases where the mayor Ada Colau declared a climate emergency in um, January 2020. And since then, has, or actually even a little bit before, has promoted a system of super blocks, which are those uh, three by three pacified uh, blocks of traffic. Uh, where streets are made to be gained back for residents for bikes rather than for cars and there are supposed to be actually 500 of them dispersed through the entire city where by the end let's say of this entire vision and project realization you would really decrease car traffic car dependence by uh i forgot the numbers but by let's say a very substantial number, residents would gain their streets back. And then within those three by three blocks, new green spaces and new nature would be um or, and actually is already being built to address flooding, um, urban heat island effects, et cetera. And then what the mayor is also adding is meaning to have those superblocks as kind of the logic of the 15 minute city or what Barcelona calls the superblocks of care, meaning that everything that citizens who need care who are part of a caring city and also in general a city for women who need way more self-care um, practices than they have been able to give themselves and society has given themselves those super blocks are also creating these networks of care with uh, schools daycares um, places for for the elderly as well socialization and, um, and day day centers for the elderly um, together with, let's say, also an economy around care. And so that's that could be really quite powerful at the same time as the city, especially Barcelona, is trying to, um, to address a long-term dependence on mass tourism. And so kind of thinking about a different development model that is much less resource consumption and waste um, driven. So you have potentials there, but you also have cities that are just, again, as I was saying at the beginning, engaging in this green route as one new kind of wave of competitive urbanism between between one another to, um, to basically attract you know, investment and in industries, rather than really think deeply about um, about the climate costs of their action. Um, Thank you
1: for your insight on this. So uh, apart from the limitation of uh, nature-based solutions, what do you think about the the social aspect of it, the co-creation, co-implementation and co-management? So what do you think about that?
2: Um, I'll respond quickly and then I'm I'm interested in hearing um, Hilary as well. Um, I mean, what we've been seeing with nature-based solutions is that um, at least those that are used towards climate adaptation is that you see also a form of gentrification via what's now known as climate gentrification, meaning that the areas that are greener, that have this kind of green resilient infrastructure everywhere are now being capitalized upon by higher income residents who are able to be the one moving into those kind of islands of resilience or citadels of resilience while others are having to move residents of, of, of color, more vulnerable residents are having to move to lower grounds to much more exposed areas because those are the only areas that they are able to, uh, to live in. You see that in Boston, for example, Boston has a huge plan called the Boston Harbor plan that is meant to literally green the entire, Coastline in waterfront of Boston. You're talking here about 70 miles or 60 miles of waterfront. So it's it's huge. And it encompasses a lot of neighborhoods, but those neighborhoods are also where working class residents have lived for decades. And now they completely feel uh, pushed away by kind of the entire greening of the waterfront. That has really accelerated a form of gentrification that was maybe more nascent that was already present. But greening is just kind of boosting the entire. Process and so you have a lot of social inequality, racial inequality that's being recreated. But that Boston Harbor plan, without enough safeguards at all, to protect residents from displacement.
1: Thank you. So, what do you think, Hillary, about the uh, contemporary climate and uh, greening policies?
0: Um, well, I would say so. Another layer that I would just add to what's already been said. So. Um, We've been talking today about urban greening and as Isabel kind of mentioned at the beginning, this this is a sort of ubiquitous policy term that can refer to all kinds of things. So we're talking sometimes about climate adaptation and mitigation efforts, sometimes these more kinds of, you know everyday forms of um, adding parks and trees and things to cities. Um, it's carried out with the rationales related to climate change, public health, quality of life, economic development, all kinds of things. Something that I think is particularly interesting about all this and that really matters in the context of climate planning is the the kind of power of particular green representations of nature. So um, as most listeners of this podcast probably know, uh, thinking about sort of how to best intervene in cities and other belt environments for climate change doesn't always look like green stuff, right? Often it's about um, investments in in denser or more, and or more affordable housing, close to transit, public transit and so on. But um, something that I talk about in, in the book and in also some of my other work is about the sort of uh, the bias towards green in many climate planning, climate uh, interventions that we see today. So there's a set of kind of representations of nature that are ubiquitous. Um, if you see, you know, architects and designers who make kind of green and sustainable, um apartment buildings there will always be sort of ivy or plants on the exterior of those buildings right and that's a way a kind of aesthetic a way a visible signifier for those of us who are looking at these things to understand their kind of sustainability content um so that's a kind of very aesthetic version but i think you also see it in um in for example climate planning so uh I've been doing some work with some colleagues here in California. We've been looking at California cities, climate action plans. So those are kind of planning documents that cities here often produce uh, that sort of say what they're going to do, what kind of action they're going to take on climate change. And so we found that um, we're looking specifically at how equity is conceived, but it's true more generally. We found that like, that equity um, tends to look green. So the paper that we're working on is called "Missing the Housing for the Trees." We find that these plans have much more um, kind of you know visi- visibly or aesthetically or um, f- recognizably green interventions in the form of open space trees and so on, and much less of an emphasis on what you might call gray or more sort of systemic or sometimes even re- redistributive interventions in the built environment related to things like transit, jobs, and housing. And we think part of the reason for that is that these these types of interventions are sort of traditionally less recognizable as environmental goals. And I think, um, so in terms of the sort of ubiquity of this set of representations, and therefore this kind of, uh, the set of policy interventions that follow, you can also see it when you think about kind of climate um, planning internationally. So regardless of the kind of local ecology of specific places or the sort of local environmental needs, often you'll see that sort of adaptation and mitigation schemes, again, kind of emphasize things like trees, things like um Yeah, the sort of natural, apparently natural parts of the built environment that may not kind of match the uh, local ecology or local social and economic needs. So anyway, that's yeah, that's just another thing that I think we should be attentive to in these Mm -hmm. projects.
1: Um, Thank you for your answer. So um, I have a question like uh, about the, the planning, climate planning, green planning. So in the light of that current situation related to uh, to the coronavirus, so um, how do your argument fit with the COVID-19 uh, um, re-evaluation that the use and appreciation of nature in people's life has increased? Do you, do you agree on that? And what do you think on the, uh, about that? Maybe you can tell us what you think about this, Isabel.
2: Um, No, I mean, this is a really important question and um, a really important uh, strategy that that cities have engaged into since um, since COVID-19, like, you know, greater construction of uh, bike lanes um, and anything related to more sustainable and active uh, mobility um, revitalization or expansion of, of, um, parks and, and green areas, uh, street being cut, uh, from, from traffic. You see, you, you see that everywhere. I don't even need to cite names, San Francisco, Milan, Paris, uh, Barcelona again, I mean, Washington. I mean, this is just impressive. What's, what, uh, some, some cities have been able to manage in terms of the space gained away from cars. Um, which, again, has huge climate impacts as well, uh, in addition to to giving people greater access during confinement to at least have some space to be safely outside and protect yourself from from infection. But that doesn't mean that, again, going back to my general emphasis on justice and equity, that it's done in a way that is um, accessible and benefiting everyone. Like, if you if If we think about, for example, the need of essential workers to commute to work every day and who haven't been able to um to telework at home and be there safely they're much more depend than um uh white collar workers on public transit or even on their cars and so biking is really fantastic if you live within you know five three five ten kilometers of your um uh your your work and you have really a flat city and it's really easy access. But 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 many cities are not like that. And so you have a wonderful new bike infrastructure and public space infrastructure within the city center. But that really doesn't necessarily bode well and is not accessible again to those essential workers, which many cases. In, in in many cases are uh, feminized workers uh people from more socially vulnerable backgrounds and so again you have a kind of a, a social and, and, and racial inequity being being reproduced there and i really like what hillary said before in terms of the design the visual the graphics like cities now have all of these really incredible tactical urbanism projections of themselves you know everywhere in the media on Twitter and all of that but if you dig a little bit more, you also realize that um, that again, not everyone has the ability to benefit from them, and then your the the timing that exists to make those changes permanent is actually quite short because the car lobby is very powerful in many cities, and so. You know those industries can strike back very quickly in um, in their demand for uh, getting rid of all of the tactical urbanization measures that have made cities more um, um, you know more livable maybe somewhat livable under COVID and I already see it in my own city of Barcelona the car traffic has actually increased tremendously again but just somehow in different ways than it used to in the sense that you have areas that remain pacified and do not have as many cars as before because all of the uh, constraints that the cities has put in place the obstacles the physical obstacles has um have made some areas really protected from traffic but then you have entire neighborhoods that haven't been touched or entire avenues and um boulevards that remain and that actually more than before are very heavily heavily um uh, car, car intensive. And then now with kind of deconfinement confinement everywhere in Europe, people are not necessarily going back to, um, they, they are going back to work, but they are not necessarily going back to public transit. They are still taking their cars. Um, and so I think that this climate crisis is not going anywhere, uh, unfortunately at all. And so cities really need to take many more bold measures to, um, to address it.
1: Yeah, thank you. The discussion on this is uh, indeed controversial. And in, in, on one side, you see people uh, using bicycles and walking, but on the other side, people are are not using public transit as before. They're using uh, their private cars, and uh, this is. Um, of course, adding to the uh, climate crisis. So, what do you think, Hillary? What do you think about uh, COVID nineteen situation and uh, how what's uh, its impact on uh, on nature and uh, both on nature and uh, 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 people's lives towards nature?
0: I think it has certainly um, raised people's awareness. If, if even possible or necessary, somehow it's really you know made. Um, People be even more aware of the kind of value of access to nature in daily lives, which is an important thing. Even though you know, I was saying sort of all the things we need to think critically about about nature at the beginning. But um, there's also you know, yeah, this is true as well. But anyway, in addition to that, um, I think it's also of course both both in the form of access who has access to open space and even you know, who has been disproportionately exposed to this other form of nature in, um, the co- in COVID-19 has really highlighted kind of how deeply intertwined um, class, race, ethnicity, um, the built environment, all of these kinds of social factors are in um, any kind of, all the ways that we have to think about the environment in our lives. Um, But more importantly, so I think another piece about all this has to do with this um, movement of urbanites to rural and peri-urban spaces. So I live in Santa Cruz, which is um, part of the Bay Area region. So kind of near Silicon Valley and near the tech economy and near San Francisco, which I think, along with New York City, is one of only two Um, cities in the United States where rents have fallen this year or something, there's been a kind of mass exodus of people um, out to the hinterland. So people buying second homes who can afford it, um, people who can work from home, um, such as tech professionals, buying houses in places like Santa Cruz, where I live. So this has had a huge impact on housing prices in the Bay Area region, including here, where I live. And so that is um, certainly on people's minds at the moment. And you know, I, I personally, I think that the the sort of worries that that there will not be a return to these kinds of cities are is probably overstated. But certainly there there's an impact on housing prices in these regions. And it is certainly the case that people who are moving into them have kind of expectations in terms of infrastructure and services. Um, and so. That's, that's something that, that all of these uh, regions are, are contending with right now. So I think there's, a, there's just a sort of question mark in terms of what the geography of um, work and home and commuting patterns looks like in the future, as well as all of the kind of infrastructure questions that come along with that in terms of internet access, um, roads, <laughs> how many of them we need, how much of that space we can turn over to pedestrians and bicyclists, as Isabel was saying, and um, who, who gets to benefit from those kinds of geographies, right? Who, who can work from home and that kind of thing, and who's going to have to uh, continue continue relying on public transit and that sort of thing. So I'd say a lot of open, a lot of open questions at all at yeah. scales
1: yeah um you're indeed right about the uh, the um, the aspects of uh, digital, digitalization mobility they're uh, definitely de- decisive in the uh, in how the development um, is uh, progressing in that in that term we see in in Dortmund and in the planning of the Ruhr region that uh, the perception of um uh, uh, of the city is changing, like what's what's uh, what's meant to be er- urban or uh, urbanized. So people are moving uh, to the uh, um, to the to the periphery of the city, and uh, definitely this will impact the planning, uh, the um, these areas and the periphery of the city and um, uh, the interplay between the urban centers and the uh, the outskirts of the city. Um, and um, so um, now uh, we would li- I'd like to close our episode with talking about the promising directions uh, for the future. So what positive changes uh, or negative do you see, but hopefully positive, do you see in the context of climate and the green politics and policies? So maybe we can start with you,
2: Isabel. <laughs> what positive do I see? Um... Again, going back from my point of view of, of, of equity right now I um, <laughs> it's hard to think about it because in some ways um, like you know this this kind of double legacy or um, constant form of land and resource appropriation that uh, working class communities have have faced since urban renewal and before you know since slavery in the us is 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 still very much imprinting um, urban planning and uh, urban development in a lot of US cities and here in Europe, what I see a lot in terms of uh, exclusion and very strong precarization of immigrant communities in the context and and their increased vulnerabilization to the climate crisis uh, makes it difficult for me to have always, you know, positive thoughts about it. I wanna be hopeful that COVID is a form of uh, alarm in a lot of um, city makers, public officials that did not even have any form of, um, you know, sensibility to issues related to nature, to, um, to climate needs, to quality of life. But on the other hand, what I'm seeing is that actually many cities have that conscious. So, you know, you're not in... 2000 and 2005, where there was maybe a much smaller um, amount of cities engaged into urban uh, sustainability, urban planning. Now, every city around the planet, you know, seems to want to promote itself as the green and uh, climate resilient and, and, and you name it. It's, greening is a form of planning orthodoxy and it has reached many uh, contours in many places in the global south as well. And so I think the discourse or the intentions are there. But uh, as I said in one of my recent articles, intentions are not enough. Being intentional in greening or being intentional in justice is not enough, especially so if your city is built on a model of urban development that is land intensive, um, that is very much driven by, uh, in the US, for example, property taxes and the ways in which developers bring those property taxes and, and, um, and, and construction, constant construction is a way to attract um, different types of residents with a higher purchasing power and then a higher capacity to buy and to, um, to pay taxes, to buy, to pay property taxes. And so I think that this these economic model, this um, these budgetary dependence, if you will, on a form of resource intensive and uh, exclusionary development is, is not permitting authorities to be as bold so far as, as, as is really needed to both adapt to climate impacts and, and, and mitigate, um, mitigate carbon emissions. Um, and so for me, that's really, it's really difficult so far to see an example of city that is not really embedded into those logics of, um, of capital intensive development and exclusion.
0: Um, thank you. What about you, Hillary? Yeah, I I think that's a great point. Um, and I like this phrase, greening is planning orthodoxy. So yeah, greening has become planning orthodoxy. That still leaves a whole lot of questions about what that means and how it should be carried out. And um, these kind of <laughs> pro-growth and capital-centric models. And I mean, I would say like, and kind of... Um, Often equity blind or or sort of uh, t- t- taking taking this term in, in pretty simple ways are not are certainly not going to be sufficient um, I think in my own work so, since i was I was emphasizing before this kind of orientation toward green aesthetics and representational forms in these forms of planning, regardless of the kind of ecological or social needs of a particular city or community I think um, maybe we're seeing uh, a bit of a shift towards more um, g- gray kinds of interventions, or interventions that are that are more oriented, or increasingly oriented towards things like um, housing, jobs, transit, and the built environment. Um, that are, as I said, like often more systemic and sometimes even more distributive, like redistributive than, than others. Uh, I mentioned that in, I've been studying these climate action plans and specifically how they think about equity. And the vast, vast majority of them continue to think about it in terms of trees. But we have um, seen a trend, a sort of a, a, a slight shift in the number of these climate action plans that are dealing with affordable housing in particular. Um, and I think also, and this is something that I've really come to be even more aware of recently as I've started to talk about my new book. So so the book also uses this phrase um, of a social imaginary of nature. So it's interested in this idea of nature as, you know, green in form, um, as presumed to be universal, as presumed to be socially beneficial, that I really argue has been dominant in planning and politics for the last 150 years. Um, And Many young audience members, uh, current undergraduates and graduate students, have said to me that they feel that there are social movements, right, housing movements, climate justice movements, and so on, that actually have a really excellent analysis of the problems with this kind of you know, this rather, rather simplistic and generally pro-growth conception, and that you're seeing arguments being made for things like affordable housing, things like investments in public transit um, as as ecological goals. And so I think that that shift in, in social movements and in sort of potentially policy understandings or sort of practical understandings of these concepts is is a change when you think about it in the context of the last 150 years or so, and one that hopefully we'll begin to see in more um, kind of mainstream and technocratic planning efforts at a larger scale. Thank you, Hilary, for the last words. Um, As you just talked about uh,
1: shift in social movements and earlier in your book that uh, special transformation in the Ru region has been induced by uh, um, social change and activism. Um, I, I support this argument, and I believe that uh, change also starts within us, and we people are the drivers of, uh, of change towards sustainable and environmentally conscious behavior. And um, yeah, so we, we people should also act green or um, yeah, behave green towards the built and natural environment. Um, Yeah, towards the end of our episode uh, I'd like to thank you Isabel and Hilary very much for being here today and for your views and insights on the uh, various topics we discussed Um, yeah and thank you everyone for listening to the podcast of Urban Political and to our today's episode about Green Cities and Contemporary Climate Planning, Practices and Politics with Hilary Angelo and Isabel Angelowski and me, the host Maze Jaffari. That's all for today and thank you very much.
0: Thanks you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io
1: Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.